everybody, and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore, and Scott is not on vacation. He's actually at work this week, uh, so I'm flying solo hosting. However, I'm joined in our studio by uh, two wonderful guests, uh, Oklahoma City Councilman James Cooper. Hello, sir. Hi. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, and also a good friend of mine, David White. How are you, sir? I'm great, Andy. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for coming. So this week is Pride Week, as proclaimed by Mayor Holt for the first time ever. Certainly a monumental, uh, I think, occasion in the history of Oklahoma City. And we thought it might be interesting to have a conversation about, uh, we'll call it the politics of pride. Uh, not just about the event, but the, like the relationship between um, the LGBT community and um, and themselves and politics and, and what it's like for, for a couple of folks who um, are members of the community to um, what their kind of journey and experience has been like. So I just told them a few minutes ago, I've not formed a, a proper outline for this episode, so we're just going to wing it uh, and see how it goes. Uh, so I'll let both of our guests introduce themselves. James, would you like to go first and tell us a little bit about yourself and how you, your journey of getting involved in politics in general? Sure. So, um, as you mentioned, uh, I serve as Ward 2's uh, representation on city council. I am on a leave of absence for the next year from teaching middle school on the south side of our city at Jefferson Middle School, where I was teaching college preparation and creative writing. I'll be returning to the adjunct classroom teaching uh, film and philosophy and English at UCO and OCU, respectively. And, um, yeah, I mean, I got involved in politics because, you know, it wasn't the plan, but when I was 17, Columbine happened and a lot of people, you know, Hillary Clinton or John McCain, uh, both parties blamed Marilyn Manson and the matrix and Biggie and Tupac and punk and uh, horror movies, you know, doom, the video game. And the, the, I'd grown up on all of that. The first movies I ever remember seeing as a five-year-old were like Nightmare on Elm Street 3. And <laughs> yeah, I had older half-siblings. Um, and, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And all those movies did for me was make me want to study them and and write my own. I've, I'm 37 and I still haven't been in a fight. So I really did not like this argument. Um, so I spent the rest of my... Uh, all of my adult life, the last 18 years in film studies, political science, <clears throat> and then my master's degrees, studying the representation of media violence, the history of violence in society um, and civilization. And spoiler, I learned that it was not Mortal Kombat or Freddy Krueger, but it was broken people, broken families, broken neighborhoods, left behind part of towns. And it turns out we had been, you know, scapegoating these things all along. And so, you know, I'd always wanted to do an academic book uh, talking about media violence. And I realized, well, maybe only other academics read the, would read that. And that's if NPR is like, read that. <laughs> um, so I said, you know what? I think this needs to be a bigger conversation. So why don't I run for city council, which is where you can tend to those uh, left behind, underrepresented uh, parts of town and, um, and take the research I've done um, to the council. And so that's how I ended up here. It's, it's, it's not the typical pathway I'm learning for someone to sit in an elected office, but. Sure. I'm not convinced there is a typical pathway anymore <laughs> for sure. So thanks for, thanks sure. for sharing. Yeah. Uh, David, how about you? Um, I am president of government relations at Alexander companies, uh, which is a contract lobbying firm. 
<clears throat> and I started in politics at um, 17. I was a page in the legislature, um, just kind of trying to build my resume and ended up falling in love with the legislative process. And so um, all through college, I interned and did everything that a um, young, nerdy politico would do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then worked on house staff for a while and then ended up um, at the Oklahoma AIDS Care Fund for uh, about a year and a half and then left and began doing contract work. Um, still lucky enough to be able to um, represent the AIDS Care Fund at the Capitol and in the community, um, which is <clears throat> a good way to kind of stay connected to um, the community, the LGBTQ community. Um, because while HIV is not um, a gay disease necessarily, it still disproportionately affects um, p- members of our community. So it's a good way that I can take kind of the years of political experience and still um, be beneficial to the community, I hope. Sure, sure. And I didn't say this up front, but uh, but James is a, is a Democrat, although your office is nonpartisan, mm-hmm. but I think mm-hmm. everyone... Sure. Knows. Right, sure. <laughs> the secret's out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and David, you're a Republican. Uh-huh. As far as I know, unless you've changed. Yeah, since no. I know at all. Had a conversation. Uh, and so we've talked uh, a lot on this this show uh, this this year about our HIV bill. And so, David, mm-hmm. I kind of want to go back uh, to you because you gave a really great summary of kind of what happened and where we're at with that bill uh, to, uh, to the AIDS Care Fund board the other night. And so maybe kind of give us a, a quick recap for... Uh, for listeners about how that came to be and and where it ended up. Yeah. Uh, so we've been working on this for three years and this year we were pretty successful in the legislature. Uh, Representative Marcus McIntyre and Senator Adam Pugh um, did a great job getting it through uh, both the house and the Senate and to the governor's desk. Uh, unfortunately, the governor vetoed the bill um, citing that The current statute allows the Department of Health and the Department of Education to um, update the instructional material as um, scientific advances and medical um, advances happen. So he suggested instead of um, changing the statute that we change the administrative rule. So we're working with the Department of Education um, in kind of consultation with the Department of Health to um, hopefully get the bill's language just moved into the rulemaking process and we can have that adopted by not the twen- by probably the 2020, 2021 school year. Okay. So sure. it's, the rulemaking process is very long, um, which is frustrating, but it's good because it has lots of public comment and the opportunity, but it just has to go through so many steps that it won't be able to be rolled out really until right. one more school year. So we'll spend the next year working on that yes. and then it would be yeah. in place. I don't, I'll be honest, like coming into this, um, you know, the last few years, I didn't know that there was any kind of administrative rulemaking process. And I'm not entirely sure I know what that even means mm-hmm. aside from my hunches, it's committees deciding on some rules and someone passes it. It's in effect. So tell me a little yeah. bit about that. So, um, I was actually lucky enough when uh, T.W. Shannon was speaker, um, I worked for the Administrative Rules Committee. And so um, I'm too familiar with the process, um, having to read every administrative <laughs> mm-hmm. rule that year. Uh, so essentially the legislature passes a uh, statute change, and then it's up to the agency most of the time to interpret what that means. And so the administrative rule is 
how an agency, a board or a commission interprets a statutory change or rule. And so it's their internal process for how they'll implement statute. Okay. So like the, so so the law passes and they're like, okay, this is how we read the law. This is what it means for us. Yes. So then the governing board of the agency board or commission will then, um, create a rule. Their attorneys will create a rule and then it has to go through public comment. And then the governing board will vote on whether they approve or disapprove the rule. And then it has to be submitted to the legislature. The legislature then reads the rules and approves them and then sends a resolution to the governor. So they typically do it in one omnibus bill now. Right. Um, And so this year we saw, I believe it was just the ethics commission and wildlife had two rules that they didn't approve in their resolution. Interesting. So, yeah, I'm learning stuff yeah. right here. So the legislature passes the laws for, let's say, the Department of Education, whatever pertains to them. Um, the Department of Ed says, okay, we see the laws and we interpret those to mean this. Mm-hmm. So here's our rules based on that understanding. And then they reflect back to the legislature. Is that correct? And the legislature says, yes, that's correct. Or yeah. no, it's not. And then and then it's... Yeah, That's the so an administrative rule carries the force and effect of statute, but isn't statute. So um, it has kind of a different um, process, but it still is the law. So, you know, a lot of times you may see um, one of the things that comes back to me maybe is like DHS, for mm-hmm. instance. The legislature may put in laws that affect them, but then DHS determines in what situations they actually will um, remove a child from a home or something. So right. they're interpreting right. that. Their policies um, and their procedures. Policies, but yeah. in order, just like with any organization, if you have policies and procedures, they need to be approved, written down, and not just kind of fly by the seat of your pants. Right. But particularly when it's government. That's, uh, so I've, I, you know, had dabbled in, in nonprofits and board work uh, until just a few years ago. And then I've had a very deep crash course in it. And um, David, you will appreciate this. Um, so... I serve on the Oklahoma HIV and AIDS or HIV and hepatitis planning council. And so Amy, our colleague there emailed me today and said, didn't we change the bylaws to allow 30 members instead of 25? And so I had to go back through all of my minutes and notes. I said, no, we've, we've all I have is 25. And the last reference was like in 2017. And so now we've got to start the process of go back and figure out, okay, well, if we want to change that, how do we change that and how much notice do we need to have and mm-hmm. so that we don't just fly by the seat of our yeah. pants and change it for our next meeting. So stay tuned for that if you attend that meeting. I'll be there. <laughs> um, James, I saw on social media this morning that you were painting a street, mm-hmm. a big uh, rainbow flag in the middle of 39th Street mm-hmm. in anticipation of uh, Pride activities this mm-hmm. weekend. Mm-hmm. This is the 50th year or 50th uh, anniversary mm-hmm. Uh, of Stonewall. Tell us a little bit about that and what that means to you this year. Yeah. So we, (laughs) it it is the 50th anniversary. And, you know, when I, when I took office, the, uh, a few of the local news channels uh, reached out to me and wanted to sit with me and talk about the significance historically of my election. And, you know, I, I mentioned, during an interview, I think at least a couple times that, cause there, you know, there's this, there's this notion, um, that I hate identity politics, they call it. And I had noticed as I took office 
there were some people you never read the comments, but I wanted to read. I, I never, re- I never read comments, but I wanted to see how far or we had or had not come in regards to LGBT acceptance, especially as it related to my being in office. Cause I needed to know where people were at. So I would know how to have conversations with them about this topic. And there were people who were, you know, overwhelming support. Let's just start there overwhelming support when you look at the likes and the loves it's just overwhelming it's not even close and then when you dig down and you start looking at who the people are who are like "Ah." there were a lot of people who were like well i hope that wasn't the whole point of his campaign and it's Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. well (laughs) we have receipts (laughs) look you know just our campaign was about you know walkable neighborhoods and connecting kids to parks with recreation and youth centers and reliable public transportation and affordable housing. And, you know, uh, it it just, that just was not our campaign. And, um, so when I then went on to one of the local channels a a week later and this question came up again, someone had literally messaged in that particular question. Why does it matter? Mm -hmm. And I responded back. I was like, well, you know, when I was in ninth grade and I came out of the closet, which was 1996, the birdcage first time I'd really seen an LGBT character in a film. It was still illegal in Oklahoma to essentially be on a date and or in a relationship with someone of the same sex, consenting adults illegal. And that would not change until the Supreme court until 2003, um, the Lawrence case. And you know, when Stonewall 50 years ago happens in 1969, um, two years later in 1971, when, um, uh, I believe it's the American Psychiatric mm-hmm. Association removes uh, homosexuality. Right. Uh, what a silly phrase. Uh, from, I like that you leaned in with a deep voice for that. Right? Just, you know, <laughs> a term that doesn't even come into existence until the 1800s. Right. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I, I, it's just such a strange thing. Um, a naming of something that's been done since the beginning of existence. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, um, when when they removed that from their uh, list of mental illnesses in 1971, it was illegal in every state but Illinois to be openly LGBT. Every state huh. but one. Why Illinois? Do you I know? Don't. That's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> Google that, somebody listening. Um, so I mentioned this just as fact. And I went back and I looked because someone had tagged me. I think one of the reporters tagged me. And... Um, and I looked at the comments again, and do you know there were many people, again, overwhelming acceptance, but some of these commenters were like, it was never illegal. And I'm just thinking, in the time it took that person to make that comment, they could have easily Googled homosexuality illegal in Oklahoma and found all the receipts they needed right. of evidence, but they wouldn't. And so the significance to me of this being the 50th anniversary of Stonewall is that it is really time that we all acknowledge what is unfortunately a not so pretty history. And that history is one where, you know, here in Oklahoma, the same year as Stonewall, there was a young man named Paul Thompson. He was a lawyer. He was arrested by an undercover police officer for simply kissing his friends on the cheek at a beer bar, spent the night in jail. And it was common at the time that when you were arrested, the state paper would print your uh, home address, your employment. And what kind of violence is that inviting to your home? Will you be able to keep your job? 
This is what we talk about when we talk about the closet. This is why people were forced into something called the closet. They could not be out. They could not be themselves. It is not identity politics then to thusly own all the parts of our identity and to acknowledge that there has been an extensive systematic history by law of literally discriminating against people. 10 years in prison were Oklahoma statutes. 10 years in prison for loving someone in a consensual relationship, 10 years in prison. And quite frankly, that was if you were lucky, if you weren't getting beat up on the streets mm -hmm. and often by the cops. So to this morning, we just thought, what if we put a flag that recognizes the history of people who were victimized, but said, we are not just survivors, but we will thrive. We're not wallowing in victimhood. We are acknowledging ugly truths and acknowledging how from that first Stonewall riot where they push back against decades of police brutality, decades of discrimination um, by losing your job, uh, violence on the streets, we as an LGBTQ people said enough is enough and we are proud of who we are and that's why that word pride is so significant. And so we thought let's for the first time in our history in Oklahoma City put the rainbow flag right there and let's have it include trans folk there's color for that mm -hmm. black and brown people um and again that's not identity politics either because when stonewall happened i have learned um unfortunately a lot of gay white men turned their back on lesbians they were just as sexist as their straight male counterparts these guys they turned their backs on black and brown queer people um, they, and, and the women, the less, a lot of white lesbians did the same to black and brown lesbians. And so this morning to see youth, LGBT youth out there with me and, um, Ali Shin, the executive director of Freedom Oklahoma, uh, Chris Williams of Q, uh, Q space, who works with uh, a lot of LGBT youth to see us out there bright and early, putting that flag in the heart of our city's LGBT, uh, district mm -hmm. where police used to brutalize people until Engel sued in 1982 and excuse me won their lawsuit and made it where the police can never come over there again unless they are called to what's it called uh, serve and protect mm -hmm. um, to have that flag there um, it was a really beautiful thing and to see those kids participating and having a safe space to do so and um, in concluding on that why it was so significant what we did this morning um, it's not for me that flag this morning was not for me. It is for the fact that of our homeless youth in, in this city. And, you know, you've, I think I saw you at maybe the state of the homelessness. Yeah. I think they say probably three to 5,000 unsheltered mm -hmm. people in our city right now. But of our youth, 40% of them are LGBTQ. And within 24 hours of them being on the street, they will be approached by a sex worker, sex trafficker, or someone getting them to do drugs. Our kids are in danger. I'm not being hyperbolic. They are in danger and it is up to us to give them a safe, welcoming environment. And, um, and it's time we start acknowledging some truths, even though there might be some people who don't want to acknowledge those truths. Sure. So it strikes me, um, James, that you kind of ended that speaking about youth and, uh, and you both said that you got involved in politics around the age of 17, mm -hmm. which is certainly the age of a lot of the kids that are involved with the Q space. Uh, and so, I think, um, James, what you were saying is that you are, you are actively creating a different environment mm -hmm. for 
17 year olds mm-hmm. who may be just now you know on the cusp of being able to vote and and maybe thinking about politics although it these days it feels like everybody even my like seven-year-old son will make comments about politics and, I, and he doesn't obviously he can't vote and uh and so i think that sounds like a, a it was i don't want to put words in your mouth but a, a, a powerful experience for you to to connect with something in your own past and say like i'm I am doing this for the next generation mm-hmm. to to do what I can to make it very different mm-hmm. for them. That's right. The last four years of teaching middle school at Jefferson on the South Side, the, I've been replaying in my head the fact that the first film I remember seeing is Nightmare on Elm Street 3. And in that film, the, um, the, the main girl, the final girl, Nancy, who survived the first film, she's now just finished grad school and she goes to this mental institution where the last of the Elm Street kids are alive and their parents don't, be- get ready for this. See, get ready for the connecting of the dots here. Their parents don't believe them that Freddie is trying to kill them in their dreams. Mm-hmm. Instead, they, they, the parents are telling these kids that it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll, that that's why they're dying and that they're committing suicide. And then finally, halfway through the film, when Nancy arrives and the, the kids don't believe, they don't listen to any of the adults. And when she finally says, I, I know who's trying to kill you. They're like, don't, don't mess with us. We're not in the mood. And she goes, he wears a dirty brown hat and he has a striped sweater. And they buck up because all of a sudden they're like, wait a second. She's listening to us. She's with us. And I have to tell you, I have felt a version. I don't know if it was just wired into my synapses since I saw that film as a kid. That I, I think it is my job. I think it is our job as adults to take our experiences, to learn from our experiences, to reflect on them, and to make things better for this next generation. We're only here for a brief amount of time. Sure. I I did not know that Nightmare on Elm Street 3 had such a deep social commentary. To it. Wes Craven, the director and yeah. writer of 1 and 2, or 1 and 3 rather, he was a philosophy professor. Yeah, he's got. Some, I mean, some of his other <laughs> stuff I'm aware of is smart. I didn't know he did one and three. Um, in my, I mean, again, this is somewhat lighthearted, but in my opinion, um, I think many times in movies and TV shows, like sequels, end up being more like that movie Multiplicity, where yeah. like each one mm-hmm. gets a little dumber. Not good. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad to hear that, especially for you, this was not the case. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh, David, to go back to you, what, as a Republican, mm-hmm. I think most people would say, like, wait a second, there are gay Republicans, uh, and may not know that that's even the case. Um, what, what can you tell us, or what do you feel comfortable sharing about your experience uh, living in both those worlds? Yeah, so I mean, I spent a lot of time um, trying to be that good Republican kid with the perfect come over, and you know the the very boring blue suit with the red tie and um there just kind of came a point that i would notice um i've met a lot of guys at young republican events um across the country and it was just there was there were a lot of us out there but we kind of we don't really um we're not as accepted within our party but then if members of our community find out we're republicans then they also kind of don't really want to accept that part of us either mm. because there there's this mentality that how could you do this when Republicans are consistently attacking our communities and and that is true but there are many of us in Oklahoma that have been working within the party to to get that to change because the fundamental parts of the Republican Party have nothing to do with this issue unfortunately um, 
you know, the evangelical right came in and kind of took over. And, and so then this became a wedge issue. But really, if you talk to just an average Republican voter, this isn't going to be on their top 10 issues. Mm-hmm. Now, there are always going to be some people that the gays are trying to run the world. And, and there's not a lot you can do about that. But if you look at some of our leadership, um, you know, uh, Labor Commissioner Leslie Osborne, yeah. a great ally, um, and I would think, if you look at her voting record, a great Republican, too. Um, and so there's this, there's a lot of work that we need to do within the Republican Party um, to make this not an issue anymore. The Supreme Court's ruled on marriage equality. And and that was their big thing, as they're trying to destroy our families. Well, now they're, you know, moving to, um, they're going to attack our kids in the bathroom and all of these other mm-hmm. ridiculous things. So we have to continue to work on that, but we also have to work within our party and say, it's okay to be gay and a Republican Mm -hmm. or to be trans and a Republican. Um, And so we've done a really good job, I think in the last several years of realizing, James mentioned this earlier, you know, a lot of the um, LGBTQ leadership and stuff tried to be your, cis white guys Mm -hmm. um and we've done a good job of getting people of color people of trans experience involved in leadership involved in discussions um and we need to just ensure that we're not alienating folks um for political ideology Mm because i don't think any gay republican is going to agree with um some of those um stances on those issues but i think when you come to taxes or to national defense and things like that mm-hmm. you're going to more align with republican ideology so i think both sides have a lot of work to do we recently um reconstituted the log cabin republicans in oklahoma to really try to work with party leadership and say give us a seat at the table yeah let us talk because you know i think i was terrified to come out to my family and my stepdad said, about time. You know, he knew the whole time. I was terrified. I, but you sure. didn't know that he was that welcoming. And when I came out in my fraternity in college, a lot of them really were just confused. Because they were like, if we would have known you were gay, we would have treated you differently. But hmm. now that we know you and you're gay, it's okay. We had never given a gay person the opportunity to be our friend. So we didn't really know. And so I think when we start having those conversations and when you put a human face on it, um, it's not about your sexuality, but it's also, we're not hiding anymore. So we're, we're just going to, you know, out to get our pizza, to mow the lawn, to do all the normal things. And, and when people start relating to us as your neighbor and not, the gay with the agenda, right? Then we can really start having better dialogue. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. The a, a couple of weeks ago, I saw that that uh, Labor Secretary Osborne was going to be speaking at the Log Cabin Republicans, and I was like, "This is," and I know her; she's a friend yeah. of the show, yeah. and um, and uh, and a personal friend. And so I was talking to my wife about it, and she said, "I didn't know that 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 group was still around." And I said, "I haven't seen anything either." And so you use the word reconstitute, and so yeah. Um, that I wondered if it was that maybe perhaps at that time in history now where there are people involved who are saying, you know, we, this is who we are and we, it's okay to, to be here and we need to 
maybe uh, find a way to organize in a different way. So. Yeah. Well, and I think last year, um, you know, there were there were a group of Republicans that wanted to get involved in Pride last year, and I think there were just some misconstrued wires. And mm-hmm. and you know, this is a very polarizing time. So members of the community didn't know what to think about that. They were mm-hmm. scared because you could come in saying, oh, we're going to be here to support you. And really it's a protest in the middle of the march. So um, I think just having those wires crossed and really trying to create a dialogue within the community, but also within our party to um, finally work through this. And we may not be successful. I, I hope we will. And I think we will um, because our generation is much different Mm-hmm. And so eventually, um, we're going to take party leadership, um, nationally. And, you know, one of our, um, uh, folks was a delegate at the RNC. And so, um, just trying to work through that within the community, but also within the Republican party. Sure. Yeah. So I've been reading a book that's on the shelf there behind you, James called uncivil agreement. I feel like we may have talked about it on the show here a couple of times, but it, it tracks the, the the division in our country right between two parties and how we how we self-sort in many ways right like um ide- ideologically racially um about where we live and and how we we live and shop and eat with people that are like us uh, and that often means that we don't interact with folks of other groups and so that yeah. as we've done that more and more um we have sorted ourselves along multiple lines right so racial lines, uh, socioeconomic lines, uh, political ideological lines. And so you get areas like what people refer to the bubble here in Oklahoma City, right? And Tulsa's similar, where you get people that are younger, tend to uh, be left-leaning, similar like socioeconomic levels, with the exception of like Mesta Park area. Um, But uh, people who uh, are a pretty homogenous group and... And that means that we don't allow ourselves or put ourselves into a place where we would cross cut with other groups, right? And so go back 60 years and you would have, you know, Northern black Republicans and Southern white, you know, Democratic women and uh, and all these kind of groups that we just don't have as many of those cross cutting uh, interactions like we used to. And so what I've heard you both say is that you at some point in your political experience there's been a i don't know if disconnect is the right word but at least a a barrier between that identity right so who how you view yourself and the the policies that you work on behalf of right so as a as a lobbyist for many of the causes that are commonly associated with republicans and as someone who uh, james is a, a democrat who is advocating for causes like public transit and stuff that are typically or often aligned with kind of Democrats. Uh, it sounds like you both have had to face conversations that were like, we, okay, this is fine, but who are you? And, and can I accept who you are before I accept policy? So I guess my question in that, and James, I'll go to you first. Do you feel like that, um, that disconnect for some voters and maybe for you um, has gotten in the way of being able to do your job politically. It's what I love about serving on city council and what I enjoyed about running as well. You know, when I knocked doors, I would always, you know, I'd have my campaign literature I'd introduce myself and I'd say, hi, I'm James Cooper. I'm running for city council. 
um, our current council person is retiring. Uh, what are your concerns for your neighborhood and hopes for our city? And I'd shut up, which is hard for anyone who knows me to believe, but, <laughs> but, um, I would just listen and really rarely did a Repub- I knocked to Democrats, independents and Republican doors and rarely did a Republican. I actually remember the th- three, three, I can count three Republicans. I knocked 4,000 doors, talked to 2000 people and I can hand to God only remember three of them. Who, who who their response to my concerns and hopes were, what political party are you? Mm. And um, two of them were right after the Kavanaugh hearings. And I said, I'm, I'm a Democrat, but this is a nonpartisan election. Sidewalks don't have a, a, a party identification, which is always a nice little right. icebreaker. <laughs> Except for, for these two guys, you're like, the way you all treated Kavanaugh was disgusting. I was like, I was knocking doors, right. sir. <laughs> like, I don't know what you're talking not, about. Not in the Senate. Yeah. yeah. And, um, so that was rare. And then Democrats were, were much more likely to ask me that question. And as soon as I said that, or when they looked at the campaign literature and saw I was a teacher, it was just a done deal, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't let it be a done deal. It's like, no, but seriously, I need to know what concerns you have in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I need to know what the hopes are for the city. Otherwise I, I, I won't know what I'm doing. Like, I won't know how to represent you in government. Mm-hmm. And they, they were like, what, really? I was like, yes. Like, give me, <laughs> give me the work, you know? Right. Um, so that was great. And, you know, and then. Four years earlier, a Republican mayor, uh, Cornette, you know, had appointed me uh, to our city's public transportation board. And through that, I was able to help get a Sunday bus service since ni- first time since 1964-65, the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act. Um, and that was a Republican who appointed me to that. And Mayor Holt took a little walk with me and about 100 people the night before I took office. We walked from the side of the first uh, gay-friendly bar that was across from um, Skirvin to city hall and he gave a speech on behalf of our community and on behalf of me and I count him as a friend. Um, and so I have some experience working with Republicans that, that's, that's, um, that jumbles, I think a lot of the wires. Um, it has not at all been an impediment to me doing my job. I, I am friends now with more Republicans and I think any Democrat would, would assume, uh, but you know, kind of to David's point, a lot of them are either younger or they're, they are, um, they're really not aligned with this contemporary Republican party. Mm-hmm. They're really not. And if they are, um, they still understand that the work I'm wanting to do on behalf of our city benefits everybody. Stronger neighborhoods means, um, you know, stronger people, healthier people, in those neighborhoods means people can spend more money and when they can spend more money at local shops and restaurants that's more sales tax for us to uh, improve police and fire and parks and public transport so the republicans here a lot of them in our city get that they understand that i think for me the the hard part the hardest part for me as a few weeks after I took office, I saw that the state Republican Party passed the party platform. I'm to understand, however, that a lot of the people that I know who are Republicans weren't there. Mm-hmm. And there were some other sure. people who were, uh, tend to be more evangelical Christian uh, type people. Although I can tell you right now, one of my math teachers at Jefferson, she's an evangelical Christian. She and I, hand in glove, love each other, contributed to my campaign. Um, she almost would have bo- voted for Bernie, she told me. Mm-hmm. Um, and she would have definitely voted for me if she didn't live in Norman. But I was really disappointed to see the state Republican Party platform say, uh, you know, we really don't like this whole gay teacher stuff. We don't want LGBT history taught in our schools. 
Um, you know, when, when you, when we do that, when we ignore the fact that the guy during the American revolution, um, who was right beside Washington, a lot of our soldiers were dying because the, they were using the bathroom really close to where they were sleeping. Right. And one of this, I can't remember his name for the life of me, forgive me history, but this guy tells Washington, he's like, I have an idea. Why don't we move the trenches where we use the restroom further out from the camp? He saved lives, and that man was gay. The guy who organized the march on Washington, uh, Bayard Rustin, gay. It is not separate history to talk about LGBT history. It is our history. It is American history. Um, the fact that we would have anybody keep that history from us. The fact that, you know, if this little Mayor Pete kid wins the presidency, <laughs> he won't be the first openly LGBT um, president. That would go to James Buchanan. And even Andrew Jackson knew he was gay. The country knew he was gay. I was listening to this other podcast. I, I, I'm sorry. I do listen to other podcasts. I do too, yeah. Um, it's called Presidential. Did you all listen to that? The Washington mm. Post one came out during mm. the 2016 election. It's amazing. About 20, 30 minutes per person. And Buchanan, I learned, was openly gay. Well, he was in relationships, right? And one of them, the relationship he was in was with the guy, a senator who would go on to found the city, name the city of uh, Selma, Alabama. Hmm. And Andrew Jackson had a nickname for Buchanan called him Nancy. Um, and so we already had this, but it's not in our history books. We don't right. teach it. And there is, unfortunately... At this moment in time, it's not to say that the Democrats have always been great. It took Barack Obama a couple couple tries to get there with same-sex marriage, Hillary Clinton too. But our party is completely right now aligned with the safety and security of LGBTQ people. And unfortunately, at this particular moment in time, too many Republicans, not all of them, like I said, David's a great friend. Mayor Cornette appointed me to this public transportation board knowing I was openly LGBTQ. Um right now we have too many people who don't want that history taught and it's one party that's doing that and that's hurting our kids that's hurting our kids they don't see themselves reflected in textbooks they don't see themselves reflected in the stories that make up america and when you look at the suicide rates of lgbt kids it's significantly higher significantly higher one in three one in five contemplate think about it and it's easier to contemplate it when no one is there validating who you are and instead you have people telling you you are sick and so I would like to see if David is successful in his endeavors and his party, um, you know, more bringing those statistics to those people and explaining here is what's at stake. I would love to see more people like my math teacher who I believe voted for Trump, but she put together an academic club there at Jefferson and asked them, you all do your own research project. And one of the kids she did, they did a trans um, project and there was Miss Gant just right there at their side just learning with her mm -hmm. and I want to see more of that but I, I worry that that's not that that's not where a lot of the people are um, on the other side of the aisle and it took my party a long time to get where we are um, but we we are here mm -hmm. we are here sure David for you um, doing the doing lobbying I mean lobbying for HIV causes is one thing there are a lot of other uh clients you guys have does your um your identity ever get in the way or come in conflict may not get in the way but come in conflict with um with your work and politics yeah absolutely um <clears throat> not with the other clients you know i that 
that's not an issue really. I think with, with the HIV work, it's, it's a very, um, a, a lot of Republicans in the majority party were like, this makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had an influx of educators and so they're like, yeah, I've had to hear this or teach this and it's awful. So they were very on board. Um, but there were some rural Republicans who really had an issue. Um, and you know, I was sitting in a member's office and, um, we were talking about it and he was like, yeah, I'm for this. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've got this rural Republican, doesn't even ask any questions. And then he immediately said, because people who choose to deny God's will need to understand the consequences. And I just had to sit there, you know, Mm -hmm. I, so I of course changed my seating to be a little more masculine at that point. (laughs) And it, because I had a yes vote and I didn't want to mess that up. Right. So I was, you know, I was gutted on the inside that he said that and that he thought that, but I had to maintain my professional face. And, um, I mean, I got his vote, but it wasn't for the right reason, but I'm, I'm hopeful that, um, you know, it's all about education. I think, um, if, if people continue, cause you know, this isn't a, a natural, homophobia is not like just something you're born with. You learn it you're taught it. You're, you know, you're on the playground and you hear someone use a derogatory term. Mm -hmm. So then you try to change the way you act and then you call someone else that. And, and so by being out there and being more visible, um, in our communities and being open about our sexualities or our gender identity or anything, then you're a relatable person to someone else. And, you know, when I was first coming up through Republican groups and things, I was very, very terrified. And then I started looking and there were a few people um, that were just older than, than I was the generation above. And, um, they were out, they were Republican staffers. Everyone knew. And so I looked at those people and I thought, well, if they have a job, then all I have to do is work hard. And so, um, you know, I hope that they see somebody sees me that way and somebody says, oh, I can be on the city council or I can be the mayor or I can do these things. And it takes people to not be hiding anymore. And I think we're at a place now where we've got um, a gay man running for president. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was a kid, really the only LGBTQ representation was Will and Grace. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and, and that was just kind of the stare. It was very stereotypical. It's a funny mm-hmm. show, but it still, you know, portrays just what people want you to think. Right. Um, and so now it's mainstream. And so I think it's just going to take time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If David, for you, we started this show by talking about that this is the 50th anniversary mm-hmm. of Stonewall. If you could imagine what Oklahoma might be like in another 50 years uh, and how we relate to this issue, you're, I'm asking you because I know that you are a measured guy. <laughs> <laughs> so in your, in your opinion, uh, where do you, where do you think we might be in another 50 years? Um, <clears throat> I, I don't know, but I, I'll say this. I'm very lucky to have been born when I was born. Um, I remember, you know, when I was first kind of coming to terms with my sexuality, I was 21, 22, and I still had it in my head. Like, 
there's no way that I'm going to be able to get married. Like there's a lot of progress, but it's not going to happen that quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just a handful of years later. Um, and I was very, I was lucky enough, but, uh, to be in DC when the ruling came down. Oh, wow. Um, unfortunately I was there and I wasn't out to my boss at the time. So <laughs> I just stayed in Alexandria and just like cried on the patio. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I remember being in DC and it's actually, I was sitting in a room with Grover Norquist when it happened of all places. <laughs> uh, but I just went outside and to see the cars driving up and down the street with like pride flags right. on, the, on, it was, it was incredible. Um, so I think the next 50 years, I mean, I'm hopeful that things get better, but I will fully admit, like I have a lot of privilege when it comes to this because mm-hmm. I can, I grew up in a rural area so I can, you know, I can really, I'm white, I'm a man and I can come in and out of quote unquote masculinity, mm-hmm. you know, so I don't have to worry necessarily. I can change if I feel like I'm unsafe, but a lot of members of our community aren't that way. So I think I will have it already do have it better than a lot of folks. And I think so in 50 years, I'll be fine, but Mm -hmm. it's, we have to make sure that more marginalized parts of our community, whether it's the young people, people of color, trans folks, um, are brought with us. Mm -hmm. And so I'm hopeful in 50 years that we're all there together and we're celebrating pride, as an actual celebration and, and not still as a protest. Mm-hmm. I think we need to still look at pride through a lens, uh, through a protest lens. Um, we're having fun. We're celebrating with our community. We've made tremendous work, but there's still a lot to do. Mm-hmm. And so if we kind of use that protest aspect, and I think the folks who are putting pride together this year have done a really great job of kind of balancing that, um, celebrating our history and where we've come from, but also acknowledging we've got a lot of work to do. Um, and we need to do it together. Yeah, that was good. Uh, I like that framing it that it's, it is a celebration, but it also still needs to be a protest. That's really good. Um, and I, and I will say to our listeners, I extended an invitation. Um, I didn't intend to have, uh, just three dudes on the, on the podcast. Um, I, uh, it just didn't work out for some other, um, uh, for some women and, uh, and for some transgender folks to be here. So, um, we hope to, to do this again, um, in the not too distant future with, uh, with some additional voices that will add additional flavor to this conversation, I think in, in a very important way. Uh, James, before we go, it is pride. Um, you've been involved in that aside from painting flags on the street. Can you give us like a brief rundown of what listeners could expect this weekend? So be on the lookout for that, um, pride flag again, first time in our city's history that that's there. Um, there at the intersection of 39th and Barnes Mm -hmm. and, um, the, I believe there's festival stuff tonight and -hmm. then tomorrow is, um, the parade at noon. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the festival continues after that, um, into the evening. So I would encourage everyone to, you know, bike, walk, uh, bus, uh, try not to drive for love of God, (laughs) uh, too many cars out there anyway. Um, so no, I think it's going to be a really good weekend. And then. From, you know, and to David's point, the people who've hosted Pride this year, uh, Lauren um, and her crew are, um, they're incredible and they should be commended because they've really broadened the conversation away from, you know, wealthy, white, older men and uh, brought more voices to it. And then I think, I can't tell you what the next 50 years are going to be, but I can tell you the next year 
July 2020, um, the 39th Street District uh, is scheduled to receive a street enhancement project. Yeah, um, This was something that Councilman Shadid, my predecessor, and I worked on with the businesses on 39th Street back in 2011, year, way before I thought about running for office, <laughs> but when I was writing a two-part LGBT history for the Gazette, a cover story at the time. And um, he and I spoke about a month or two later at a Republican fundraiser, if you can believe it. <laughs> and um, I, I said to him, I was like, well, we can't change what's in people's hearts. We can't. But we can change their environment and our kids need it. And I said, let's honor the history of the 39th street district. And he's like, I think I understand what you're saying. Went over there. We created a bylaw, uh, some bylaws and, uh, with those businesses. Um, and, um, lo and behold, now that I am the first LGBTQ representative on council, I just so happen to be stepping up right as those street enhancements that those bylaws made possible. And that's going to be stakeholders there in the community. It's going to be the neighborhoods, uh, the neighbors in those neighborhoods, the business owners, uh, coming together and they're going to say this is what we want so be on the lookout everybody if you're out and about this weekend um, the design consultant for um, the street enhancement project will be out there with about a handful of different designs for us to look at I have not seen them yet Ooh. I'm excited one of the very first appointments I made as a board appointment was uh, Tony Carfang who uh, a straight ally and a cyclist uh, rides his bike to work from Shepherd neighborhood to Boeing <laughs> bless his heart um that's what we still say in Oklahoma, bless your heart. Yeah. Um, but he um, he's working with them to make sure that that area is as walkable and bikeable and it has the infrastructure that it needs to um, encourage private investment to step up. Um, isn't that fun to hear from a Democrat? Like that the government's <laughs> yeah. role is to provide infrastructure and then let the private market take it from there. See, we have more in common. <laughs> we have that in common. Uh, so, um, no, I, I think it's going to be a really exciting time. And if, we, if, if, if 50 years from now... Um, the kids who were there today painting that flag have in their head that whether they are trans, non-binary, black, woman, whatever they may be, they remember that their council person and the director of Freedom Oklahoma and the director of uh, youth uh, LGBT groups here were out there working with them yeah. to create that better environment. They'll set the stage for what needs doing next. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you for sharing. James, thanks for being here. Thank you. David, thank you. Thanks. And that brings us to the end of this episode thanks for tuning in um if you are listening to this before the end of the weekend i encourage you to go out to in your local city or want to drive in uh, i encourage you to go check out pride it is uh, a lot of fun and it is an interesting um a time as a as an ally as a straight ally someone to it's a important time i think to reflect on our role in advocating for equal rights um, for everybody so uh, don't forget to uh, rate and share the podcast with your friends. Next week, we're going to have an audio from our last West Wing Weekly podcast. Uh, be a uh, panel discussion with Steve Hill, Donnell Harder, and Phil Bacharach uh, and talk about their experience as the right-hand person to some of our elected leaders. So catch that. Scott and I will both be on vacation. And then we'll be back on September, or excuse me, July 5th. Uh, with an actual live episode. Until then, have a great week.